0: Hello, and welcome to episode 28 of Sam Splitting Science. I'm Sam. I'm your host. I'll be Sam Splitting the Science. And today we're talking about misinformation. Let's get into it. Hey, everyone. How are you? I hope you're all doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. Um, I. I don't know. I feel like before we jump into the science, I like to give a little bit of a personal update, but not really much personal things to update on. Um, I'm cat sitting for my best friend right now. So you might notice this if you're watching on YouTube, YouTube, Sam's Pointing Science, and you'll find it. Um, This is not the usual couch that I'm sitting in front of. So maybe you notice that I'm not in my own home. I'm in my friend's home watching her cat, which has been interesting because I'm not a cat person. Um, but this cat is cool. I like this cat. So we're, we're cohabitating pretty well so far. Not good. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Some cats sitting. What else? I saw Harry Styles last night. I should have started with that one. No offense to the cat. I love her cat is named Edamame and she's a sweetheart, but no offense. I've loved Harry Styles for longer than I've loved Edamame. So just putting that out there. Um, but yeah, I saw him in concert last night. It was amazing. It was life changing. I'm a new person now. So if you knew me before August 26th, you don't know me anymore. I'm different. I'm different. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but that's my personal life update. (laughs) I went to a concert. (laughs) So, yeah. Um, Anywho, let's get into the episode, shall we? Let's get to what we actually were going to talk about today, which is misinformation, as I said. The title of this episode is called Little Misinformation. You know those memes that were going around like, four weeks ago, that were really funny four weeks ago, and now they're like, oh my god, stop. Um, well, guess what? I made one. Uh, you know, it's like Miss, Little Miss, whatever. Little Miss iced coffee every day. I don't know. That's what mine would be. Um, but Little Miss Information is today's episode title, because we're talking about misinformation. And I saw the opportunity, and I took it. Even if it might be a couple weeks late, better late than never. Um, (laughs) anyway, um, I feel like the term misinformation is like a buzzword in our time, in our society, right? I think a lot of people talk about it, but it's still like a really big problem in the world in which we live. And, uh, I think it's only getting worse with like, well, obviously in the age of the internet and like social media and stuff, it's like, Rampant, So um, I don't know. I guess I just wanted to talk about misinformation today uh, because it is important and because a lot of times misinformation has to do with science or, I guess, misinforming people about science. So I think it's kind of relevant, even if this is a science podcast, I think it's relevant. So we're going to talk about it. So that brings us to today's questions. We have three questions today. The first one is a two-parter. It is, what is in, what is misinformation, and how does it spread? So that's question one. Question two is, how are we susceptible to misinformation? And the third question is, how can we stop misinformation? Um, as, of course, you are well aware of already. The sources for today's episode live in the episode description. Um, But I, for this episode, am mainly focusing on a Nature Medicine review article titled Misinformation, Susceptibility, Spread, and Interventions to Immunize the Public, written by Dr. Sander uh, Vanderlin. And this article is actually sent to me by my friend Adrian. Thank you, Adrian, for sending this article to me he said to me in like March so sorry it's like five months late um <laughs> thanks for your patience um but yeah I, I think it's like I said misinformation is a very relevant topic in the world in which we live and educating ourselves on it won't make it worse and hopefully it'll make it better so that's the ultimate goal of today's episode is to learn a little bit about misinformation and uh Hopefully, make us better equipped to preventing it. Um. Okay. Yeah. Let's get started then. So, question one: What is misinformation? Question one point one: The first part of the first question. Um, so, misinformation based on the review article in Nature Medicine. Um, Dr. Van Linden described it as false or misleading information masquerading as legitimate news regardless of intent. So basically misinformation is information that is not telling the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So there are pieces of a claim or an article or something that either is partially or fully false. False. And many times, misinformation is communicated in a way um, that makes the false claims seem true. And this can be done in a couple of different ways that um, Dr. Van Linden describes in the article. But two of the main ways that I think stood out to me were, firstly, communicating false claims in an authoritative tone or like, making it seem like it's a credible source, even if it is not a credible source. So a false claim that comes from a quote-unquote news network that's not actually a news network, you know, or, um, you know, things that seem like they should be credible, but they're not. People saying like, oh, I'm a doctor. So I can tell you that You know, this disease is blah, 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 blah. And then you look up and their doctorate is in like English literature. No shade to English literature, obviously. Much respect if you have a doctorate in English literature, but you're not an expert in medicine. You're an expert in English literature. But because they say, well, I'm a doctor. That's true. But are you a doctor that's qualified to speak on a topic? Maybe not. Um, So just like those sorts of things... Using, um, you know, titles to seem more credible, um, having your false claims come from a news source um, that maybe is not the most reliable news source, um, things like that. That's one way. The other way that Dr. Linden talks about um, misinformation being communicated is in a way that appeals to our human emotions, and to me, something that sticks out is, like, the idea of fear-mongering, right? And saying, like, you know, you have to do this or something bad will happen. And people are like, well, I don't want something bad to happen, so I have to believe this. I have to do this, you know? It appeals, it appeals to their fear or, like, other emotion, maybe anger, maybe, maybe sadness, you know? Any human emotion that we have, if a false claim appeals to your emotions it triggers you and we'll get into that in a little bit but like it'll trigger trigger you in a way to be like oh I need to share this I need to tell people about this I need to you know and um it's particularly dangerous when that information is false completely false right because then you're you know not rationalizing and you're just like sharing reactionary um we'll get into that later though I don't mean to jump ahead too much, but those are some ways that misinformu- misinformation is communicated either with a false sense of authority or credibility or with um, appealing to human emotion. Um, another topic I wanted to mention was this idea of misinformation versus disinformation. Some studies of misinformation um sort of divide the two ideas where misinformation is more of like an invalid or a false statement that is stated because of either a misunderstanding of a topic or like leaving out all of the information Um, but it's not like totally it's not a total lie it's like the intent isn't to spread misinformation in a malicious way it's just like oh i misunderstood and now i'm saying things wrong that's misinformation in some contexts um and then in that case disinformation is sharing fallacies sharing false information in a malicious way to say i want people to believe this thing that's completely untrue for an ulterior ulterior motive that is uh Malicious, so that's disinformation versus misinformation. Um, however, it's very difficult when we're studying misinformation and disinformation to prove the intent of sharing false claims. So oftentimes they're just sort of lumped together into this idea of misinformation. But I thought that was an interesting um, classification that I hadn't really thought about. Um. But in the review article by Dr. Van Linden, he lumps them together as mis- and disinformation together. Um, So, anywho, that was a spiel. Another thing I want to mention before we sort of move on with this question with an example is that misinformation is the spread of false claims, which implies that there are true claims out there. If we're spreading false ones, then there must be a true alternative, right? Um, And with truth, there is facts, things that are real, things that are true. And um, it's something you can prove. It's something you have evidence for. And, uh, you know, we can determine or, like, collect this evidence and, and analyze it with science. So as I mentioned in the beginning of the episode... A lot of times misinforma- there is misinformation around science. However, science is the thing that is helping us collect data and analyze it in a way. Shout out episode 27 where I talk about st- statistics. Ooh, I'm still having a problem with that one. Um, but yeah, so science allows us to collect this data and analyze this data and, and prove with evidence that what we're seeing is true. You know, so um, the whole idea of, like, misinformation is, like, very much the antithesis of what we're trying to do as scientists, which is get as close to the truth as we can with evidence, with proof, with facts. Um, And to close out the first half of question one, I wanted to talk about a real-world example of misinformation, and I want to do this in the context of the ongoing monkeypox outbreak because there has been quite a decent amount of misinformation, as you can imagine, being spread about this ongoing outbreak. Um, And I don't want to get into too much of the detail, uh, because I don't want monkeypox to take over all of this episode. However, I would be happy if there's interest to do another episode all about monkeypox. Um, But I am just going to do a little bit of a background spiel, in case you haven't heard about it, in which case, I guess you're just completely unplugged from the world what's that like so I'm going to sort of give some context so that um you know we can understand it all from the same space and then talk about the misinformation that's being spread about what's going on um so monkeypox. Is a disease that's characterized by symptoms that start out in like a fever, chills, sort of fluish um symptomology, but soon turns into um developing sores, uh lesions, or pox, as they're called, um that start as red bumps on the skin, sort of all over like the hands and the feet, and eventually spreads all over your body. And um These bumps eventually turn into blisters, which can be very painful and very uncomfortable for people, particularly some people have them on their face, like near their mouth or their eyes. It's very painful and not pleasant. Um, So that's sort of like the symptomology of the disease. Monkeypox has been endemic, meaning it's been like present and circulating around populations um, in African countries, including Nigeria, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Central African Republic, and Cameroon, according to the World Health Organization. And in these places, um, monkeypox is typically transmitted from animal to human. Let's see if I can turn that down. There we go. Um, Monkeypox is typically spread from either animal to human or from human to human with close contact between the humans and the lesions. Um, So getting into the transmission now, of like human to human transmission, you can catch monkeypox from someone who has it if you're in very close contact with their lesions. So if someone has a lesion on their hand, and you're holding hands with that person, you're exposed, you could potentially get monkeypox. So, like, close skin-to-skin contact in any context can spread monkeypox. Also, coming into contact with, like, soiled linens, towels, bedsheets, clothes um, of someone who has monkeypox can um, put you at risk of catching monkeypox because um, it can live on, like, soft surfaces for a while. Um, there's also some talk about potentially it being spread through respiratory droplets, although not as contagious through respiratory droplets as COVID is, but it is a possibility, a possible route of transmission, but not the most common. And also uh, some bodily fluids. Um, so that's sort of like the transmission routes. The most common is close contact with the lesions themselves or with like the clothes that people who have monkeypox wear or like the towels they use, etc. So earlier this spring/slash summer, around like May, June time, um there were cases of monkey pox that were reported in countries that were outside of the countries where monkey pox is endemic. Um, those four countries I listed before in Africa. And, um, this caused alarm because normally there isn't like person to person spread isn't that common outside of these countries. And, um, it was a cause for concern of like increased transmissibility potentially. Um, and uh, we can do a whole episode on monkeypox, and, like the spread, um, and I can go on a rant about how now it's a problem, that it's outside of Africa. Now everybody's concerned, even though we have tools to inoculate against smallpox, which could help. That's another rant for another day. But I guess what I wanted to do was give some background and give some examples of the information that's going around about monkeypox that is false. That is misinformation. Um, so the first is the notion that monkeypox is a gay disease. That only gay people, only gay men can get monkeypox. That is completely and totally false. From the jump, I'll tell you you're wrong. That's not true. And I'll tell you why. Um, because there are people in Africa who have been exposed to monkeypox for decades who are not gay who have had monkeypox. So it's possible for you to not be gay and also to get monkeypox. So it's not a gay disease. Um, also in the current outbreak, there are people who are not gay men who have it. However, the reason I get why some people might think that at first, because it is reported that a majority of the people who have been affected by this outbreak are gay men, are men who have sex with men or MSM, as you may have seen and if you read like articles about it, um, but so primarily, I don't want to say primarily, but the majority of people who have been affected by this outbreak are men who have sex with men. And it's not because there's something about them being gay that makes them more susceptible to getting monkeypox. It is solely because of, you think about like social circles, right? And like if somebody has monkeypox and they're going to a dance club or they're going to a pride parade in June um, you know like if they're in close contact with people who are also belong to the same social circles they can potentially spread this disease if they're in close physical contact with them so um, that's why it's it was seen like primarily in gay men it was nothing about gay men that made them more susceptible. It was solely because it started circulating in their circles first. Um, So it's not a gay disease. You can get it regardless of your sexual orientation or gender identity. It has nothing to do with that. Um, That's the first piece of misinformation that I wanted to debunk. The second is the notion that monkeypox is a sexually transmitted disease this is a misleading claim i won't say it's complete misinformation because monkeypox can be spread during sex that is true because it is close skin to skin contact however it's not its primary route of transmission um you can have close skin to skin contact by holding hands with someone you know that's not a sexually transmitted disease so i, I I think this one, there's just more nuance of, like, well, can it spread during sex? Yes. But is it sexually transmitted? Not really. We're not really sure, I think. The last that I read about it, and maybe I should do more research before I talk about this on a full episode, but the last I read about it, they weren't totally sure if it was spread during, um, spread through um, bodily fluids that, were, that exist during sex, Like semen. They don't know if it is transmissible in those types of uh, roots. So it's hard to classify as an STD if they don't know if it's possible to get it in the way that you would get any other type of STD or STI, I should say, Um, either one. So that idea, that notion that monkeypox is a sexually transmitted disease is misinformation because it's not fully true. Um, There's nuance to it that, um, you know, you're withholding information of, well, it, it can be spread during sex, but not in the way that other STDs are. So, so that's sort of like what misinformation is and like an example of it. But one other thing that I want to talk about as the second part of question one is the spread of misinformation. So, In Dr. Vanderlinden's um, review article in Nature Medicine, he makes a really interesting analogy um, of misinformation to a virus. He argues that, like, well, misinformation spreads, a virus spreads, um, you know, we can, it spreads from person to person, um, and then we can inoculate ourselves or immunize ourselves from misinformation with education Um, just like the way we can immunize immunize ourselves from a virus with a vaccine Um, and I think it's a very interesting analogy especially because um, you know just like the idea of misinformation it does sometimes go viral right literally that's the term that we use on social media of like something spreading so fast it's viral. It's a virus. Um, so in Dr. Vanderlinden's, uh, you know, analogy, he talks about the spread of misinformation um, in the context of, like, spreading, like, a virus. And this is something that we can actually quantify or, like, put a number to, put a measure to. Um, and that is called the R-naught number or the reproduction Number you might have heard this um, in the context of COVID, but basically what it means is how fast is this virus reproducing in infected people, like in the, in the number of people that it's infecting. How fast is it growing or not growing? So the R naught is like a ratio essentially, where if the value of the R naught is greater than one, this number means that the virus is spreading quickly. Um, if the R-naught value is less than one, it means that the virus is not growing and it will eventually, or I sh- sorry, I should say the spread of the virus is not increasing. And that means that the virus will eventually like fizzle out. Um, and thanks to social media, we can easily quantify how misinformation spreads. Um, so, Dr. Vanderlinden cited some studies that have been done to talk about the spread of misinformation compared to the spread of real news. And throughout the article, he uses like fake news. Um, I don't like using that term fake news because I don't know, it just, to me, it seems too lighthearted. It seems like, oh, fake news, haha, like n- misinformation is a problem. And we're not gonna LOL fake news, you know? Like, I, I don't know, I don't like that. So um, I prefer the term misinformation. But also, I don't have an article published in Nature Medicine, so what do I know? Anyway, um, <laughs> so he, Dr. Van der Linden, talked about some studies um, using social media to quantify how misinformation spreads. And one of the studies that he quoted um, showed that tweets on Twitter, on twitter.com, have you ever been on it? Um, (laughs) Tweets on Twitter that have false information are up to 70% more likely to be shared than a tweet that has true news um, or like real, credible, true information, Um, which is kind of depressing when you think about it. like. Things are more likely to be shared when they're not true, so that sort of lends the lends to the idea that misinformation can spread like a virus if it's more likely to be shared than true news. Um, he also shared that data shows that it takes true news, quote-unquote true news, six times longer to circulate than quote-unquote fake news does, uh, which is another depressing statistic. Um he also mentioned that there were some studies that showed that the distribution of the accounts that spread information is skewed. Call back to episode 27 about probability and statistics. Um, where basically this means that only a few accounts posted and spreaded most of is spreaded a word, by the way. I don't think it is. I think it's spread. Um, <laughs> anywho, um, most, there were only a few accounts that spread most of the misinformation that is available online. So in other words, most of the people on Twitter and on social media platforms um, aren't sharing that much false information, misinformation. Um, So that's good news, I guess, if you think about it that way. That's not as depressing of a statistic as the other ones were. It's like, okay, well, at least most people aren't spreading misinformation. That's good news. Um, The last thing that I want to highlight that Dr. Van Linden talked about in his review was that exposure doesn't necessarily equal infection, so if we are exposed to misinformation as it is being spread, that doesn't necessarily mean that we are going to be, quote unquote, infected by the virus of misinformation, right? So even though, you know, most people don't spread information misinformation through their social media feeds, um, there are still people who see misinformation i think there was a statistic in his paper that said that some polls show over 30 percent of people experience daily or frequent misinformation on their social media feeds so there's 30 percent of people potentially who see misinformation but a a much smaller fraction of the population are actually spreading the misinformation So, in other words, not everyone who is exposed to misinformation, like the 30% of people who were exposed to misinformation, not all of them spread it, right? So, to me, that sort of begs the question, question number two, uh, what makes a person susceptible? What makes us susceptible to believing and spreading misinformation? So, that's the second question of today's episode, so, just to summarize question one quick, hopefully, we have a better understanding of misinformation, what that term means when we hear it. And ho- hopefully, also, we have a little bit of context as to the spread of misinformation and how, like, when things go viral, we can use, you know, numbers, statistics, percentages to understand how, uh, how, it's, how misinformation is being spread on the internet so cool on to question number two which is how are we susceptible to misinformation like why do we believe misinformation in the first place um I alluded to this sort of in the beginning of the first question when I was talking about like how misinformation is communicated where basically like, oh, you can either say it with a lot of authority so that people believe you even though they have no sense or no reason to believe you. Um, And then the second one was like, oh, communicating in a way that appeals to people's emotions or feelings, right? Um, Dr. Van Linden in this section of the article talks about people being more susceptible to spreading... um, misinformation because of the thing called illusory truth or basically this idea that that your the truth that you believe is an illusion right the reason why that happens is because of this thing called processing fluency where basically the more a claim is repeated and heard the easier it is for our brains to process and that should be like That should make sense, right? Like when we study things, remember like back in school, we would have to study. When you're reading things over and over again, like your brain is like, oh, yeah, that's what the mitochondria does. And it's like repetitive hearing, you know, facts over and over again helps them stick in your brain, right? So this sort of repetitive exposure um, allows our brain to easily process what we're hearing, and when, when things are easy to process, it almost seems obvious, right? Obviously, the sky is blue. Yeah, because we've, you know, we see it every day and we know that it's blue. Um, but when popular media, when politicians, when influencers repeatedly say things that are false, and we are exposed to those fallacies, our brains repeatedly take that in, internalize it, so that eventually, when we hear it, we say, well, yeah, obviously. Obviously, that's true, right? So, like, there were people early in the pandemic, and maybe even today, who say, COVID is no worse than the flu, And I think, maybe I'm projecting a little bit here, probably I'm projecting a little bit here, but I think the reason why they say that is because they've heard that talking point so much that they believe it. But if you look at the proof and you look at the evidence, you look at the data of excess mortality between any other seasonal flu and the COVID-19 pandemic, you'll see that COVID is much worse than the flu, right? But because that excess mortality data isn't shown everywhere and these other talking points of misinformation are shown in a lot of places, we have that repetitive exposure and eventually we believe it because that's what our brains do, right? As Dr. Vanderlinden cites in his review paper, my cat friend is here now. Hi, Ms. Mamey. She's coming to lighten the mood. I think she sensed that I was getting a little emotional about misinformation. Thanks, girl. Um, come on over. You can see her on the video. Now you really have to go to YouTube and search Sam's Splitting Science that you can see at a You go, girl. Um, right, so this idea of repetitive... Exposure to lies um, is just taking advantage of a natural cognitive experience in our brain of like repeating an idea and um, repeating an idea so much that it now seems real it seems like a fact um, so as Dr. Van Linden cites in his research article um or in his review article, research shows that prior experience, yeah, research shows that prior exposure to fake news, again, he uses fake news, um, increases its perceived accuracy. So like if you've heard a piece of misinformation before, you're more likely to perceive it as truth when you hear it again. Um, He also mentions in his paper that illusory truth can occur for both plausible and implausible claims. And um, I mean, this is, I guess, sort of playing at the whole idea of misinformation and how sometimes it can be totally outlandish and be like ridiculous of like, what? You believe that, you know, insert crazy conspiracy theory here. You believe that someone killed Avril Lavigne and now she's a body double. You believe that? that sounds kind of outlandish, but people believe that because they've read a lot about it and they've seen a lot about it. And then eventually their brain believes it. Um, and then it can also be for like plausible things that are like, Oh, maybe that's true. Maybe we didn't land on the moon. No, I'm just kidding. We did. We did. Um, but you know what I mean? Like it's things that seem totally outlandish and things that like, maybe it is possible. Those can both be Um, you know, involved in this sort of idea of illusory truth. By the way, I keep saying illusory, but it's illusory. Because leave it to me to pronounce a word wrong. I'll do it easily. Um, Another idea, um, another thing that Dr. Van Linden cites in his review article is that previous studies suggest that prior knowledge doesn't necessarily protect people against the illusory truth. So in other words, it can happen to anyone. People can believe misinformation as truth regardless of their education history, right? Regardless of how many degrees they have, it is possible to be a subject of misinformation because it's cognitive, right? We all have brains. Some of us use them better than others, and i'm targeting that at me who can't pronounce words um but you know like prior knowledge doesn't like you could be the quote unquote smartest person in the world have all of the degrees have all of the whatever and still be a i want subject victim i don't know if victim's the right word but like You can feed into misinformation because you have a brain and that this is the networks of your brain and how they work. Um, Cognitive reasoning, you know, and, uh, you know, cognitive processing, I mean. So, um, yeah, I guess that just shows that it can happen to anyone. Um, Dr. Van Linden also talks about some theories as to why people are susceptible to misinformation potentially more than others. And the first theory he refers to is the inattention or the classical reasoning account. And this is like basically people, people want to share accurate information, but social media moves so quickly and people don't have or don't give the time That is needed to consider the accuracy of what they share and this kind of goes off of the second talking point of like oh sharing something that appeals to people's emotions when people get emotional you know they're gonna hit retweet without thinking like what is this source who is telling me this what is really happening what is the truth they're not going to go into that and they're going to say this is a horrible thing that happened or like this is you know whatever and share it without giving the time to um you know think about it and 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 consider where it came from and all those little nuances um they're more reactive right and oftentimes this happens when the content of the misinformation is emotional emotionally charged or politically charged a lot of times people tie their political affiliations very close to their emotions so when they see something they're like oh reshare, you know, whatever. Um, So for classical reasoning account, this first theory that Dr. Van Linden talks about, um, he says that humans basically have two systems of thought, right? And the first system is more automatic. It's intuitive. It's reactionary. The second system is more analytical, more reflective, right? It's less um, less reactionary. So for people who are maybe more accustomed to going with their gut and like following their gut instinct, maybe their system one is stronger than their system two. Um, you know, and maybe people who have a stronger system two, who are more analytical and logical are less likely to appeal to the emotional reaction of sharing a piece of misinformation that might make them feel a certain way. Um, So that's this sort of classical reasoning account theory for being more susceptible to misinformation. The second theory on why people may be more susceptible to misinformation is the motivated reasoning account. And this theory oftentimes is motivated, uh, like financially motivated or politically motivated or um, motivated by a religion or other sort of affiliation and basically what happens here is like someone starts their reasoning with a certain affiliation a certain goal in mind so they will read a piece of information and say this aligns with my goal this aligns with my affiliation it must be true retweet share whatever um And this is a quote, I think it's a direct quote, maybe not exactly direct quote, maybe paraphrased, but basically the types of commitments that people have to their groups have a tendency to lead them to share and endorse media content that reinforces their beliefs, whether it be political beliefs, religious beliefs social beliefs, whatever. And the basic premise here is that they consider accuracy, they consider if it's true, but they also notice when the story can be helpful towards achieving their goal. So maybe they're not purposely sharing a lie, but for them it's like, well, I'm going to share this even if it's not true or even if it's not fully true because it aligns with this ideal that I have or this identity that I have. Um, And I guess something to think about in particular is this idea of source bias. And I think specifically for motivated reasoning when we're thinking about we have this predetermined goal and like this identity that we're aligned with, um, if we get a piece of information, whether it be true or not, from a source that aligns with our goal and aligns with our identity we put faith in it even if it is false we sort of have this trust within our groups where we will believe something even if it's not true because it's coming from within my group someone like me said this so it must be true That's sort of the reasoning, the thought process behind it. And Dr. Van Linden actually cited a study done in Political Americans where um, they looked at liberals and conservatives and showed them both pieces of truth and misinformation. And they showed true and misinformation from a liberal source and true and misinformation from a conservative source. And what they found was that conservatives were more likely to believe misinformation to be true when it came from a conservative source. And the same thing for liberals. Liberals thought misinformation was true when it came from a liberal source. Vice versa, they were better able to detect false news, fake news from the opposite um, source. So like conservatives said, that's misinformation from a liberal source when it was and liberals said that's m- misinformation from a conservative source when it was. So this sort of plays to the idea of like, oh, this source that I align with must be telling me the truth. And then conversely, the source that I don't align with must be lying to me. That's sort of the motivated reasoning, an example of the motivated reasoning when it comes to political ideologies. <sighs> Whoo. This episode's kind of heavy, huh? I'm going to take a water break. <laughs> okay. Um So I guess that's all I wanted to share for the second question about how we're susceptible to misinformation, but I guess when we're thinking about the susceptibility of believing and spreading misinformation, it's important to understand that these are like natural thought processes that go on in our brain, right? They're normal things that our brain does, like cognitive processing patterns in our brain that can help us in a lot of cases. But when it comes to misinformation, it can also hurt us. Um, and to me that shows the importance of like being aware of your sources and whether they are a credible source Um, and also being aware of like your thought processing and your reasoning when it comes to reading and believing things or like reading and sharing things on social media Um, like why am I believing what I believe is it because there's evidence that supports what I believe? That there, there's real truth behind a claim that I believe? Or is it because I've seen it a lot? And it's just starting to feel true to me, even though there's no evidence to prove otherwise. Or maybe it's because I believe it because it came from someone who is part of my group, whatever that group might be. You know, I think it's it's important to keep that in mind when we're reading things on the internet and sharing headlines and stuff. Um, okay, so that's the susceptibility conversation about misinformation. The takeaway is that we all have brains that work in this way, so it's possible for all of us to, um, you know, be a a be involved in misinformation belief um but this sort of idea of like being reactionary and or belonging to groups that maybe tie to our emotions a little too tightly um may might make us more susceptible to misinformation all right i think i've been recording for a very long time now wow i have been geez louise um This is going to be a long episode, but you know what? I'm going to just rant because it's important, dude. All right. Question number three. How can we stop misinformation? I'm going to try not to vent too much in this. I'm going to try not to ramble for this question. I'm just going to stick to the bullet points and go through them. Although it is important, so I don't want to take away from the importance of this part. Um. Anyway, during this sort of idea of likening misinformation to a virus, Dr. Van Linden talks about how we stop viruses Um, and how we can stop viruses or prevent them from getting too bad is by immunizing ourselves against a virus, right? So he breaks up these ideas of stopping and preventing um, misinformation into a therapeutic treatment for those who have been exposed to and infected with misinformation. And then also a prophylactic treatment where um, we want to prevent misinformation from spreading to people who haven't yet been infected with it, in quotes, infected. Um, So let's get into the resolutions or like the treatments, the therapeutic treatments for people who have been infected with misinformation. Um, In the paper, there are two figures in particular that are super helpful in understanding the therapeutic treatments and then the prophylactic treatments. Um, So I'm sharing them on the slide here, but if you're listening, um, I highly recommend you take a look at the paper in the link. Um, Yeah. At the paper in the link to uh, check out these figures. Um, but basically the whole idea behind the therapeutic treatments for misinformation is debunking the myth, debunking the misinformation. So if there's a person who believes misinformation, what can we do to debunk their misinformation and share more accurate or more true information with them. So the best practice recommendation for effectively debunking misinformation is to start with facts, lead with the facts, and make them simple and sticky, which is an awful way to explain it. But basically, share facts that are facts, firstly, foremostly, from expert sources, um, but also that are like easy to digest and easy to remember, And then the next step is to warn about the myth, warn your audience about the myth and say, you know, there's a belief that monkeypox is a gay disease, right? But as I mentioned, the facts are here. This is how it spreads through close skin to skin contact. I started with that and then warned about the myth. There's there's a myth that it's false or there's a myth that Insert false information here. The third step is to expose the manipulation technique. So explain how and why the myth is misleading. In some cases, this is a conspiracy theory. In some cases, like in the case of monkeypox being a quote-unquote gay disease, it's a misunderstanding or a misinterpretation of the real-world data. Yes, we're seeing higher incidence in gay men, but that doesn't mean that it only spreads in gay men. Right? We're exposing the myth and why it is a myth. And then in closing, we end by reinforcing the facts that we brought up and providing a credible alternative explanation. So that's how we can debunk, effectively debunk misinformation to a person who believes misinformation, potentially. And I mean, there's more than just these steps, right? Of course, there are some people who are very, you know not really willing to change their mind they're very stuck in their ways and that's actually one of the things that um in the pitfalls and the limitations Dr. Van Linden discusses this idea of correction backfiring like when people are corrected to say like oh actually what you believe is not true and here is the truth they like double down and they're like no 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 i'm right so there's you know it's not a totally perfect system um, and one that should be studied further, absolutely, with more research and more, um, you know, behavioral psychology work. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's a way to do it. So, all right. So that's the therapeutic treatments. Now let's move into the uh, prophylactic treatments. And I will not lie to you. I had to Google prophylactic. I think every time I see that word, I'm like, what does that mean? That's one thing that never sticks in my brain, the word prophylactic, what it means. Same thing with a balk in baseball. Whenever a balk happens in baseball, I'm like, what is that again? It's when like the pitcher flinches or something, but whatever. Um, it just doesn't stick in my head. I don't know why. But prophylactic means like before something happens, like in preparation for something. So for prophylactic treatments for misinformation, what we're doing is trying to prevent misinformation from infecting an individual. And how can we do that? Um, We can use what's called the psychological inoculation theory that is outlined in the second figure, which is shown on the slide in the video, or if you want to take a look at the paper. But this theory of psychological inoculation starts with um, the quote unquote vaccine, basically preparing ourselves and other people for a potential exposure of misinformation, right? When we get a vaccine, we get a, a forewarning or a, a, you know, a initial exposure of misinformation so that our, or of misinformation, of a virus or an antigen at some point so that our body can make antibodies against that antigen or virus, Right. In in the idea of misinformation, we can give a preparation for people who might experience or might be exposed to misinformation so that they and their brains can create antibodies against misinformation. And they call these cognitive antibodies. Um, And they also call the idea of the vaccine pre-bunking. So instead of debunking a myth that is already believed, we're pre-bunking so that we don't believe myths that we come across, so we can build these cognitive antibodies. And then once we have this inoculation and we have this immunity to misinformation, we're less susceptible to believing misinformation, and we can talk to others about misinformation and maybe help them prepare and prevent themselves from believing things that are not true there's a couple of different ways to do this um and I guess two ways to classify this idea of like or inoculation or immunization is passive and active inoculation so passive inoculation is like being told about techniques and tactics for misinformation and how they're spread Right. So like at the beginning, I mentioned faking authority or like non-credible sources that seem credible or, um, you know, appealing to people's emotions and feelings. Right. Those are all ways and tactics that people who spread misinformation use in order for people to believe them. Um, so passive inoculation is just learning about it, understanding it. Dr. Van Linden's paper also talks about this idea of active inoculation and what seems like a video game sort of thing, like a choose your adventure type of thing, where there were studies where people pretended to be in a position of authority in like a news network, for example. And in this case, they're like a producer and they're supposed to be putting out misinformation. And they are exposed to common strategies of how to spread misinformation, right? Say it in this way to appeal to, you know, to make people scared so that they'll believe us. Or say it in this way and like, you know, use this quote-unquote reliable network to do so. Um, But this like helps people who are in this sort of like role play game realize that Um, like how easy it is to manipulate people to believing fallacies and it sort of opens their eyes and gives them the perspective that they don't have in their day-to-day lives right most people aren't in charge of what goes on in the news right so for us to understand like oh they can communicate in a certain way to make me scared and they're trying to make me emotional. They're trying to make me reactive so I don't rationalize what they're telling me and I just believe it, right? When you get that experience from the other side, you have a better understanding of the tactics of how misinformation is spread, um, you know, and that, and that gives them the insight to maybe question everything, <laughs> you know? Um, the review article cites a few randomized control trials that showed that this sort of active inoculation led to improved ability to identify misinformation, p- improved self-confidence in truth discernment abilities, and a reduction in self-reported sharing of misinformation. So this could be you know, a fun, interactive way for us to learn about how misinformation is spread that can benefit us and protect us from believing misinformation um, when we're exposed to it. So between the debugging with therapeutic treatments and the pre-bugging with prophylactic treatments, I think these are both really interesting ways to combat and prevent the spread of misinformation. Pretty interesting, pretty cool. So I think all that's left is our closing thoughts for this week's episode. Um I guess the closing thoughts that I have are that misinformation is harmful and potentially dangerous to our society. It takes us further from the truth and it can, you know, taking us further from the truth can hinder our progress in society in a number of ways, right? If we're thinking about misinformation in terms of medicine, medical procedures, things like that, um, misinformation can hold us back from moving forward. Um, Or in some cases, it can even cause us not just to not progress, but to regress, to move backwards, you know, as a society. So, I think it could be potentially very harmful and dangerous to our society and I think that's why it's a very important topic to be talking about um so my takeaways are that um after this episode I'm going to be more aware of the things that I'm sharing on social media kind of alluding to what we talked about in questions one and two you know get that like analytical system 2 going and rationalizing what i'm reading before i share instead of having that system 1 reactionary system um you know be in control when i'm sharing things on social media or sharing things online i'm going to try to be more conscious and try to put more energy into rationalizing and understanding before i share um you know like checking the sources of what i'm sharing and you know, making sure the content that I'm sharing isn't fear-mongering or appealing to people's emotions, or my own emotions, right? Um, you know, making sure things aren't making me feel some kind of way where I'm like, oh my God, I have to share this. And it's like, why? What's what's the truth? What's going on here? You know? Um, the next takeaway that I have from this episode is calling out misinformation when I see it and debunking it if I can um you know I think that this paper like we walked through had a very good flow chart of like how to debunk misinformation so maybe either in conversation or online if I come across some misinformation um you know trying to be better at calling it out and debunking it when I can um the last takeaway that I have from this episode is to have grace with people. I think some people some people who share misinformation definitely have malicious ulterior motives without a doubt. That's not like why else would they lie, you know? Mm-hmm. But remembering that not everyone has those malicious motives, right? Not everyone is sharing misinformation to be evil. Some people are sharing misinformation because of the cognitive patterns in our heads, right? And we're sharing misinformation because it appeals to our emotions. And that's a good thing, right? We're human. We have emotions. We have feelings. But not, I guess, now understanding how we are all susceptible to misinformation gives me more grace when I see it to not judge people, I guess, Um, based on, like, the ridiculous claims that they're sharing. I no longer want to be like, how could you believe that? It's like, oh, it's just because they're brains. They're cognitive. We all have cognitive reasoning in our brains and cognitive thought patterns. Processing, cognitive processing, that's what I was thinking of. Um, So it's really just, like, I don't know having more grace with people who are sharing misinformation and not assuming that they're all evil and it's like oh they're just they're just misunderstood um no but actually and like also having grace with others when debunking misinformation I think that's also a very important thing one thing that wasn't really mentioned in the flow chart that I I struggle with I know I struggle with this in my life um is like the tone with which you're speaking, right? If someone is sharing misinformation and you come at them with your voice raised and you're pointing fingers and you're like, you're wrong and here's how I know it, they're not going to listen to you, right? Like you need to work on having grace and, and, and communicating in a tone that is empathetic and understanding while also not straying from the facts and the truth. Um, and keeping that at the center of the conversation, of course. Um, but yeah, that's the last takeaway that I have. But hopefully, you have some or all of these takeaways from this episode as well. Um, maybe we can all be more cautious of what we're seeing online and what we're believing online. And, um, you know, hopefully we can all combat misinformation together. So I'll see you on the front lines. Salute, emoji if you're not watching there's a salute emoji um yeah so that's all for this week's episode um please don't forget to follow rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening you can also subscribe on youtube if you haven't yet uh you can just go to youtube and search sam's planning science or the link is in the description of the episode um you can also follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Sam Sci. I also have a TikTok at Sam Science. Um, I haven't posted one since my research conference, but uh, if you want to go check it out, I'm going to start trying to use that a little more often as well. Um, but yeah, you can connect with me on the social medias and ask me questions if you'd like. You can also ask questions at SamSplainingScience.com ask. So if you have anything that you want explain to you, ask away. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope you learned a little bit and laughed a little bit. And I'll talk to you next time. Bye.